Welcome to Tentpole Trauma, the podcast where we look at movies that came with hype and high hopes, but left with crushing disappointment, either critically, at the box office, or both. Freed from the weight of expectations, we seek to examine these underperformers under a new light, parsing through the good, the bad, and everything in between with the hopes of gaining a better understanding as to why they failed to find their audience. Warning, there will be spoilers, so if you haven't seen the movie that we're discussing today, I suggest you stop the podcast and go watch it. Then when you come back and listen, you'll get more out of the discussion. On this episode, we discuss Streets of Fire. Sebastian and I'm here with Jennifer. Hello. <laughs> We're doing another Just the Two of Us podcast. Just the Two of Us. We are gathered here today to discuss a 1984 film, Streets of Fire, directed by Walter Hill. Probably most people listening to this podcast aren't familiar with this movie because it's sort of disappeared into obscurity. But if you were a teenager who watched MTV in the early 80s, you probably saw some of the videos that were extracted, I would say, from this movie. This movie came out and it was going to be a big deal. And then it tanked at the box office, ergo why we are discussing it. But the major impact I feel like it had was uh, on MTV, especially the song by Dan Hartman, I Can Dream About You. I can dream about you. That was a big MTV hit. Sure was. And boy, has it been stuck in my head since we talked about doing this. Mm -hmm. And then... I also had uh, just Apple's soft rock 80s on mm -hmm. and that that song came on. And yeah, it's just been it's been stuck in my head ever since. The songs that I really enjoy from this movie are the two Jim Steinman songs. There's one song, Nowhere Fast, which uh, Diane Lane's character mm -hmm. sings. It doesn't really sing. Right. Other women sing it. But she lip syncs it early in the movie. And then the one at the end, which is called Tonight is What It Means mm -hmm. to Be Young which I really enjoy. They're both super Jim Steinman-y compositions. If you don't know who Jim Steinman is, he wrote most of Meatloaf's songs. 
totally I was like I didn't I did not know that he wrote meatloaf songs but I was like yeah these songs are like meatloaf songs yeah and yeah. like total eclipse of the yeah, heart Bonnie Tyler yeah yes, he wrote yes. that you can tell mm -hmm. he has a certain style it it's builds. like builds and builds and builds yes. and like you think you've hit the chorus and then nope. like another chorus happens and then like another chorus happens I kind of love it I think it's so over the top and you're like how many choruses is this song gonna have and it just keeps with the choruses it's amazing never enough choruses I'm totally here for it yay Jem Steinman he's a really great and unique composer and I do feel his songs really work with the sort of operatic nature of this movie. Now, originally, the movie was going to have a Bruce Springsteen song in it. Apparently, there is a Bruce Springsteen song called Streets of Fire, hmm. which was where they got the title for the film. But he decided he didn't want it to be in the movie. So they got Jim Steinman and Dan Hartman instead. And the rest is history. It sure is history. This film was uh, directed and written by Walter Hill who at the time was known for the Warriors, mm -hmm. and he had just made 48 Hours. Mm -hmm. And apparently the studio was so happy with 48 Hours, with what they were seeing before it even came out, that they were basically like, what do you want to do next, Walter Hill? And he was like, Streets of Fire. I've got this idea, see? <laughs> it's going to be like this comic book adventure movie with... Everything I loved when I was a teenager in mm -hmm. it, that's basically the whole concept of this. Mm -hmm. And he imagined that it was going to spawn a whole bunch of sequels starring Tom Cody, the um, lead character in this movie. He was going to be like an action hero and go off to have more adventures. None of that happened, of course, because this movie was a bomb. It grossed $8 million in North America against a production budget of $14.5 million. So it was a huge, huge fail. And I remember it coming out because of the videos mostly. And I remember, you know, there was a lot of footage from the movie in the videos. And they looked cool. They looked very much like the sort of things you would see in 80s videos. Like 80s videos seems to be a huge influence on this movie and the way it looks and the way it operates. So it seemed ready-made for MTV, but it just really wasn't a hit at all. What sort of history do you have with this movie? Well, I, as I was sharing with you earlier when we talked about doing this, I get this movie confused with Eddie and the Cruisers. And it's because... They came out around the same time, and they were on heavy rotation on HBO, and um, also both starring Michael Pare. That's right. So I know they're different films, but I would get them confused, like certain scenes. Um, like, you know, we'll get into this, but like I, I remember the core elements of what was happening in Streets of Fire, but I kind of just interchange it with, and I know Eddie and the Cruisers is different. I mean, it's, you know, the guy who died and, you know, the legend of all of that. And I don't think I've sat down and watched maybe Streets of Fire all the way through, maybe ever until we watched it for the podcast. Like I just, it would be on TV. It's really easy to understand why you confuse this with Eddie and the Cruisers, because like you said, they both came out right around the same time. I believe Eddie and the Cruisers came out before this, but it hadn't come out in the theater before Michael Pere had signed on to be in Streets of Fire. So he was sort of an untested leading man. Walter Hill 
I think, had heard of him through his agent, and he knew he was going to be the star of a movie that was coming out, but he hadn't seen him in anything. So it was sort of like, a, well, this guy's supposed to be a big deal. He's mm -hmm. in this movie coming out, Eddie and the Cruisers. And so that's how he ended up in it. And it will be a source of contention for the movie because I think ultimately Walter Hill was not happy with Michael Perret's performance. Tom Cruise was up for the role, but didn't want to do it. And Patrick Swayze was also up for the role. I could see that. And I guess both of those guys passed. And we ended up with Michael Perret, who has gone on to have a pretty middling to low career, all things considered. He didn't really turn into much of an A-lister or anything. He's Continued to work throughout the years, mostly in like low budget B stuff after this. But I think this was maybe his big chance to become a leading man and it didn't work out for him for a number of reasons. One person that it did work out though for was Willem Dafoe, who plays the villain in this movie. He plays a greaser villain and he really kind of steals the show. He stole the all the scenes that he was in and I think most people remember him from this movie even though he's not really in it all that much spoiler he also steals diane lane that's right that's how the whole movie starts <laughs> off and also diane lane is the female lead she's gone on to have a better career than michael perret for sure she you know definitely had her moment in the 90s and the 2000s as a leading lady so we love diane lane I love Diane Lane so much and Willem Dafoe. I mean, we actually got to have a Willem Dafoe double feature because we had um, gotten Spider-Man. Yep. No Way Home. So we got to enjoy him as the Green Goblin and then as a little baby-faced creep in Streets of Fire. And he's just, he's so, he's just really handsome. Like, it's this young version of him and he's just like, he's terrible. He's just like such a creep. But he's also... There's something about him. He's super charismatic, of yeah. course. But he is weird looking. Yeah. He's a creepy looking guy. But he's handsome. But he's still handsome. Right. That's what, yeah, it's 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 a, it's hard. I don't know. I can't I can't put it to words. He's got that rare quality of where he's both ugly and handsome at the same time. <laughs> yeah. Some people would say I have that quality. No. All right. Well, let's talk a little bit about Streets of Fire, 1984. Now, this movie is set in another time and another place, mm -hmm. it says. It is billed as a rock and roll fairy tale mm -hmm. or something like that. Something, a rock and roll fable? That's so correct. It is? Yes, yeah. it's rock and roll fable. Yeah. What that means essentially is that the production design is really kind of a little bit over the top. Even though it's supposed to be sort of taking place in the 80s, everything looks like it's the 50s. Mm -hmm. There's old cars. Most of the movie was shot on a soundstage, which you can definitely tell. It's this supposed to be this sort of rundown city. They don't ever tell you the name of the city, but they tell you the name of different neighborhoods. Mm -hmm. You know, most of them are all like in the sort of underpass type of areas where there's like an elevated train above it. You don't really ever see the train except for one scene, but you see the big girders that are holding up the train. If you've ever been to Brooklyn or Chicago, there are areas of the city that look like this where, you know, you've got like storefronts and then right next to them as like the big columns that support the elevator elevated train that goes by. They actually shot this in Chicago. They shot some, some of it. in Chicago, yeah. Yeah. some exteriors, but most yeah. of it was actually shot 
on a big soundstage yeah. and they like tarped over the entire soundstage so that they could make it look like nighttime some of the time. But then like birds were roosting in the tarp and stuff and it was causing all sorts of noise and they had to ADR everybody. It kind of looks a little similar to Tim Burton's Batman, mm -hmm. the way Gotham looks in that. It looks a little bit similar to that. And there's a lot of scenes with like cars driving around and motorcycles and stuff that sort of remind me of the Batmobile scenes in Batman. Yeah, I could see that. It definitely is a cool look and it definitely is stylized. I mean, I think it looks cool. It looks like, I mean, kind of what you were talking about earlier, it looks like a really cool music video or something. It, I get what he's going for with it being, you know, like another place, another time. It's not really specific that it's set in this time and this is the city it's in. It's keeping that all kind of ambiguous. So it feels surreal in that way i mean i think yeah i think it looks cool it, it works for i think what they were trying to do it's definitely really kind of baby boomery yes you know like oh the 50s were so great let's pretend everything's still in the 50s it looks like that famous painting that like is of that diner where yes. it has like james dean and right isn't that the, yep. what i'm talking about that's kind of what the whole thing looks like yes so we start off the movie at a rock show that's taking place in the neighborhood of Richmond. It's a city district in this city that we never really fully learned the name of. It is the hometown return of this lead singer and her band, Ellen Aim and the Attackers. Mm -hmm. And Ellen Aim is played by the gorgeous Diane Lane. And I think she was 18 years old. Mm -hmm. At the time of making this movie, it's right after The Outsiders. Mm -hmm. And she is lip syncing to Jim Steinman music. She is lip syncing to Nowhere Fast, which is a cool song. The setup is basically that she's come home to celebrate her victory as a rock singer. And this biker gang decides to just crash the concert and kidnap her just because she's hot and cool, I guess. Yeah, she looks amazing. And I, I just love Diane Lane so much. I have loved her. The, the first thing I ever saw her in, which again, this used to be on HBO a lot also, was A Little Romance. Mm. And it's a, it's like she was, I think it might have been the first thing she was in. She's like 13. Yeah, Diane Lane, just love, love, love her. And she's so good in this. And her performance is so good. And I, I just kept thinking of her in the, in the Fabulous Stains. Yes. And I was like, wow, she should have been in a band. Yeah. Like she has got it. I mean, I know I, I know she's lip syncing, you know, so I don't know how great her, her actual voice is. But man, can she like sell it on stage big time. She does do a great job of selling it. As somebody who's a musician, I can really tell. They don't even try to make it really seem like she's really singing yeah. in a way because there are like multiple voices going on sometimes and like multiple women's voices. <laughs> so she sounds like two different women sometimes. It's yeah. really not trying too hard to make it seem realistic. Yeah. But you know, it's a rock and roll fable. We'll go with it. The music is great. Yeah. She looks great. Great. 
the production of it, which was shot in the Wiltern, all those... Oh, cool. Um, all those concert shots? All the concert stuff was shot at the Wiltern Sweet. in L.A. Nice. Which we've been to, and we love the Wiltern. Many times. Such a cool place. All that kind of stuff is pretty fun to watch. And apparently, uh, Walter Hill did not know what he was doing for any of that. He actually had like some second unit people who had worked in videos doing it, and he was like, I don't know how to make music videos, so... It's shot really well. Yeah. I, I love all that footage, and I love actually... The rando biker gang that comes in, it it feels very Mad Max to me or something like, you know, just like we don't know what time this is in in history or whatever, but it felt like kind of like apocalyptic in that way or post-apocalyptic in that way where like, you know, there's just these like road warriors or whatever. They're just going to come in and they're just going to steal her because she's hot. Yep. (laughs) <laughs> right off stage in front of everyone. Other than Willem Dafoe, the other notable biker is Lee Ving yes. from the band Fear. He doesn't do much, but he's a definitely a really notable presence. And he screams sometimes and you recognize his voice if you know the band Fear. Oh, he's great. And he not much longer after this. I think it might have been the very next year he was in Clue. He plays Mr. Body in Clue. Right. Yeah, he's I, I, I love leaving. I mean, I'm a fan of Fear, but I also I think he's like a, he's a great presence. He doesn't, you know, ever do, like you said, a whole lot. But he he does what he's doing well. And um, I think he's a good actor. He's a good tough guy, yeah. thug type henchman. That's kind of what he always does. This is all being witnessed by Deborah Van Valkenburg. If you know Walter Hill films, you will recognize her from The Warriors. Mm -hmm. And I would say that this movie is probably the closest to The Warriors that Walter Hill has ever done. This feels in a weird way like kind of a spiritual sequel to The Warriors. It does, but it's not The Warriors. No. <laughs> it's it's not. And not to hate on this film, and, and there's good things here, but I, I, I did just keep finding myself being like, this isn't The Warriors. No. Because it's it's too, it's cl- it's close enough to be com- compared to it, you yes. know, and it's also, it's his film, so you can't help but go there. I mean, it feels very similar, mm-hmm. but it just doesn't have the badassness of the warriors the grittiness the grittiness just kind of it's weird the warriors is weirder than this too like this isn't that weird i mean it's kind of but i mean if you have to pick between the two it's the warriors well the warriors even though it's really stylized in terms of how the gangs are dressed Mm -hmm. and everything they still shot it mostly in new york and on the streets without permits and stuff too like just out there (laughs) so it has that kind of gritty feels like really feels like new york and it's 79 so it's a sweet sweet spot right where this all feels like a soundstage somewhere with some exteriors here and there, but most of it feels like a soundstage yeah. or a backlot set. So Deborah Van Valkenburg witnesses the kidnapping of Ellen Aim. So she writes to her brother, Tom Cody. He's off somewhere doing something kind of nefarious or something mm-hmm. like that. And Tom used to be Ellen's boyfriend, so she figures that that'll be enough for him to come back and save her or whatever. So that's the whole like inciting incident of our plot is the old boyfriend comes back into town to save his girlfriend who's been kidnapped by bikers. Well, we don't even like really know. Like all we see is this like typewriter typing this like and yeah. it's literally like one sentence. It's like, dear Tom, I need you come home or something like that. Or yeah. something very basic like that. So I don't even know who Tom is to her at first. Like I didn't know it was her brother. Yeah. I mean that's kind of it's revealed once he gets there and you know, whatever, but he just shows up with his suspenders. 
Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like, it, and it's so odd because it's kind of supposed to feel 50s-ish or whatever. But what Tom looks like, he's wearing something from the Great Depression. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> right? He's wearing like suspenders and like slacks. Like and... wool slacks and like maybe even like a cabbie hat or something. Or I don't, maybe he's not wearing that. But no. he like, it just looks like he's, he's from like the 20s or 30s or something. Well, he shows up back in town at the diner, the very 50s type diner where his sister, Deborah Van Valkenburg, works. And then these toughs come in and make a scene, and he kicks their ass pretty handily and takes their cool car. So that's going to be his vehicle for the movie. Yeah, he kicks all four toughs' ass. They're not so tough. These guys look like total, like at least. I mean, I know Willem Dafoe and Lee Ving's like gang is kind of goofy too. Like we were like saying later, like when they when there's a large gathering them later, it kind of like looked like something from Cruisin' yeah. or something like that. I mean, it was like it was it was kind of like looked kind of cosplayish in that sense. They look like leather daddies. Yes, leather daddies. Not that there's anything there's wrong. No, with there's that. nothing wrong with that. I just chuckled because I was thinking of um, Tobias from um, Arrested Development. Right. But even that being said, they're more terrifying than these guys that he like single-handedly like wipes out. Like they look, the, the guys that are in the diner that are the tough supposedly like look like they're from Greece or yeah. something, <laughs> right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> they were like extras, the B-string from Greece or something. Yeah, or like a Stephen King movie. Oh gosh, because those greasers are terrifying. Yeah. Stephen King's nightmare fuel. So Tom does the typical refusal of the call and mm-hmm. just for whatever reason decides, oh, I'm not going to go save Ellen. So he goes to a bar to get drunk and that's where he meets one of our main supporting characters, played by Amy Madigan, McCoy. McCoy is definitely coded as a lesbian, although I think they sort of pull back from that a little yeah. bit at one point. She says she like went out with a guy at or one point. Or she's married or something, or yeah, I don't but know. If this was made today, yeah, she, would she would be would a, lesbian. a lesbian. But they were, yeah, they exactly. They don't want to like fully go there, even though she keeps saying like, you're not my type. Yes. But we also meet... Bill Paxton, That's right. who we love so much. And miss so much. Miss him so much. Yeah, it's just so like delightful to see him pop up. And and this makes sense because then Walter Hill was involved in Aliens later, right? Yeah, he was one of their co-writers. I mean, and Bill's in that. Yep. So that, that kind of makes sense that maybe there was some sort of connection there. Bill Paxton was everywhere at this time. Well, you know what I was thinking, too, is what, remember what we had learned after he passed is that he had like that paper route Mm-hmm. Um, when he first moved to LA with like one Mike Muir or somebody from Suicidal Tendencies right. was like his like buddy that he had the, like they would go to like that punk club I can't remember the name of it, right? the famous punk club in, in LA and they would go and like see bands all night you know whatever and party and then they would go and do their paper route like at 4am or whatever but I was also thinking like he probably knew leaving too like yeah. that was probably you know a whole scene like just yeah come come be in this be an extra in this and he's just such a presence he's just like any scene he's in he's always just so much fun right he's you always notice him you can't yeah. not notice him he's not a big part of this movie he's just a bartender yeah. who's in a few scenes but the scenes he's in you're like oh bill paxton you're just so happy to see him and he's so great and she like punches him or something at some point yeah. right? she gets the better of him and then jumps behind the bar and yeah. pours drinks for tom yeah and stuff. because he was saying that like maybe she needed to settle up her tab or something like right. that so they got into it but um 
yeah, it's it was it's just, it was a nice surprise to see him. I got to say that McCoy is kind of my favorite character in the movie. I think she's great. I really love Amy Madigan. Like, she's a great character actor. If you don't know who she is, you've seen her in movies, especially in the 80s. Oh, yeah. She always plays kind of like a tough, tough. chick. Yeah. Because uh, she looks tough. I don't know. I just love her in this movie. She's kind of my favorite character. And she pretty much is Tom's ride or die throughout the rest of the movie. Oh, yeah. No, she's holding her own, too, throughout. I mean, like, she saves his ass sometimes. Yeah, yeah she's... She, I, I love her, too. I think she's great. Apparently, Walter Hill had taken some criticism for his lack of strong female characters, and so this was a, apparently an attempt to rectify that, plus giving Ellen kind of a central role, even though she's, you know, the damsel in distress that gets kidnapped, she still gets a lot of screen time. She does. So, you know, he was trying to write better female characters for whatever it's worth. Yeah. I think in both cases, they're well-written characters. I agree. In comparison to everyone else in the movie. Yes. Nobody's that well-written in this movie, let's be clear. And certainly not Tom Cody, as played by Michael Pere. Jeez. Man. <laughs> I mean, well, wait a minute now. <laughs> I know it sounds like we're going to come in hot on poor Michael Pere and bag on him, but I think he does what he's supposed to do. I think he does what he's supposed to do. I just think like the material he's given is just like my good. Okay. Michael Pere is very handsome. Mm -hmm. And I, and going back to Eddie and the cruisers, I feel like he's much like, better used yes. in Eddie of the Cruisers than here where it's just like, yeah, it's just such a, I mean, it's, it's not, I'm, I'm not putting blame on him. It's just, his character's just so one dimensional. Like yeah. there's just not, not a lot going on there. His character is tough guy. Yeah. That's it. He's just tough. And then he's got a soft spot for Ellen that comes out later. But even in the beginning, he's just kind of like, why do I want to help her? Ugh. Yeah. And then he only is going to help her because he's going to get like 10 grand or something to help her from, well, we didn't even, what about Rick Moranis? Well, I was going to get to it. <laughs> sorry. I'm like, that. sorry. But yeah, Tom's easy on the eyes. That's all I got to say. He's definitely easy on the eyes. He's got dreamy hair and yeah. eyes. He's not setting the world on fire. He might be setting the streets on fire. Oh. But he's not setting the world on fire with this performance. But then again, this isn't really the kind of role that needs somebody to set the world on fire. No, I, no, that's what I'm saying. He's doing what is asked of the character. Like he's 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 portraying the character it's just the characters there's not a lot there you could argue that somebody like patrick swayze could have maybe brought a little bit more to the table i think he would have i mean he's like roughly the same kind of like good looking where he's like he can play tough guy he's got like the physical uh attributes to pull it off tom cruise i'm sorry he's so small he would not have been convincing in this well, role he, it would have could have just been it would have felt forced we were talking about the outsiders earlier too is like i don't think tom cruise is bad in the outsiders by any means but like his characters is a little is this there's certain things that like tom cruise is really good at and then yeah. there's certain roles where i'm like this doesn't really make sense to yeah. me i mean he can do so many things but like i i cannot see him as as tom cruise as tom the character in this yeah. patrick swayze i could have seen that because he could be and he's also in the outsiders 
and he works in the outsiders as that type of character i think that's what i'm i'm getting at is like he's kind of is it dairy right isn't it yes he could do that where he can be tough guy but he can show a little bit of a softer side yeah and it's like you get a little bit of that with with michael Parry, but it's just i don't know i think i think patrick swayze might have been a better choice for this yeah he could have pulled it off apparently when they were Working in editing, everybody was just kind of like, oh, Michael Perez just not really jumping off the screen. And I think that took a little bit of the wind out of their sails. Like I'm saying, I think it's a little unfair. I think he pulls off what he's asked to do, but he's certainly not elevating it. He's just kind of playing it straight down the middle as a big, tough guy. Yeah, it's just... Michael Pere. I'm not trying to slam on what he did because I think he did a fine job, but I could just, knowing that Patrick Swayze could have done it, he's just got more charisma for lack of a better description. Like yeah. he could have pulled it off. Well, I think time has borne that out. Yeah. A few years later, <laughs> Patrick Swayze would seduce the world in Dirty Dancing. He sure did. He was everywhere when that movie came out. And that was also set in the 50s or whatever. Yeah, I think that's what it is. Because I'm thinking of The Outsiders. I'm thinking of Johnny Castle and Dirty Dancing. And it's like, he is kind of that bad boy with a with a soft heart. Right. I think the editors would have liked editing that better. So anyway, Tom is ultimately convinced to go after Ellen by her manager, who is played by rick moranis it's also her boyfriend also her boyfriend which is a little odd i do love rick moranis though i have such a soft spot for him well funny story apparently michael perret did not like rick moranis because rick moranis was a comedian Mm -hmm. and he came up through like stand-up comedy and stuff and he would take the piss out of Michael Perret all the time. Like he was like, so like, are you really a tough, cool guy or is that just how you play things? And like, apparently he would just give Michael Perret shit all the time. <laughs> and like Michael Perret's like, this guy couldn't get laid in a whorehouse with a handful of fifties. And he's giving me a hard time and making me look dumb and stuff. And like, apparently like he really wanted to hit him. But he couldn't because, you know, they're in a movie. Wow. Yeah. And then like later on in the movie, I think he does like threaten him at one point. Yeah. And I think Michael Pere really meant it in that scene. But yeah, apparently he did not like Rick Moranis. Aww. And Rick Moranis gave him a real hard time, made fun of him the whole movie. <laughs> it just kind of endears me even more to Rick Moranis. Yeah. So the deal is that Rick Moranis's character, Eddie Fish, has to actually go with them to this other neighborhood in the city where there's this club called Torchies. <laughs> Torchies. <laughs> and that's where the bikers hang out. And so that's where they're keeping Ellen Aim, just like in a room, tied up in a bed in Torchies. Doesn't Torchies sound like something that would be like on The Simpsons? Yes, totally. <laughs> so they all get in this hot rod or whatever and uh, go to rescue Ellen Aim, uh, McCoy, Eddie Fish, and Tom Cody. And here's something that kind of just irks me about this movie. So this is all supposed to be taking place in the same city, right? Mm -hmm. So ostensibly, we're like going from, I don't know, Manhattan to Brooklyn or Manhattan to Queens or something like that. But they make it seem like this car ride takes a long time. Like... This city is huge, I guess, and these neighborhoods are really far apart. It just seems like distance only matters when they want it to, Mm -hmm. and it doesn't really matter 
when they don't want it to. Like when they don't want the neighborhood to be far away, it's like right in the next neighborhood. But for whatever reason, they're on this really long car ride. There's I mean, there's another uh, scene later with the bus that seems to take forever, too. Right. They commandeer a tour bus that has a soul group yep. in it. And then that ride seems to go on forever. Forever. Like the, the soul group does like a whole like acapella number in the bus. <laughs> And then they like get to their neighborhood like at daytime and it's been night the whole yeah. time. And then there's like cops there and stuff. It's like, how far away are these neighborhoods? Yeah. It makes no sense. No, it's only like you, you nailed it. It's only for convenience. Like if they want to have an acapella number or something, like, oh, we'll do it on the bus. Yeah. <laughs> so we get a big action scene in Torchies. It's kind of cool the way it's staged because uh, McCoy goes in first and like this creepy greaser hits on her and she's like okay well, i'll go with you and then like they go in a back room and then she like pulls a gun on him or whatever and then meanwhile tom is like staked out on a roof he's got this cool like pump action rifle that he uses throughout mm -hmm. the most of the movie and if you see the movie poster he's got like it slung him mm -hmm. over his shoulder it's kind of the image of the movie with like diane lane like up against his arm and he's got the gun against mm -hmm. his shoulder and he's like blowing up all the bikers bicycles and then meanwhile amy madigan's like going into the club and she confronts Willem Dafoe and all his guys while they're playing poker or whatever and holds a gun on them. And meanwhile, Michael Paré comes into the club and cuts Diane Lane loose and then they're back on the run. But he actually puts them all back into the hot rod and sends them off and then stays behind with a gun. And there's a little scene between him and Willem Dafoe where Willem Dafoe's like, I'm going to get her back and I'm going to get you. Yeah. And he's like, I can get guns too. Or whatever. Yeah. Like, because Michael Paré's like, fancy shotgun or whatever he's right. like I can get I can get guns too or something he says something like that I can't remember what the line is right I think it earlier Michael Pere had like gotten a bunch of guns mm -hmm. from somebody like a trunk full of guns somewhere yeah. all of this stuff is not no. very clearly spelled no. out it's all really kind of put in there real quick it feels like they cut a lot out or else they just didn't bother to fill in the details I just here think they didn't bother like yeah. it's, it's, I, I honestly think they just were like, yeah, and then this happens. But also at Torchies, we forgot to talk about the rando girl that's dancing on the bar. Oh, yeah. Like in the full, like, I mean, she's got a rock and bod. She's in like a full fishnet bodysuit. Mm -hmm. But again, it's like, it's weird because like that, like her whole get up and like her moves and everything like if that again feels like kind of post-apocalyptic. Well, at the same time, there's like this blues band playing. <laughs> so and they're playing this like, you know, barroom blues and she's like dancing faster and faster yeah. and faster. We should say that there's a lot of music in this movie yeah. to the point where it's almost a musical. Yes. When these scenes happen, there's usually some sort of music going on. Ry Cooter did a lot of the soundtrack. So, you know, there's this sort of bluesy, almost John Carpenter, they live-ish sounding soundtrack going on. Yes. But also you're getting like full songs from bands and stuff in all these different scenes. So it's pretty much wall to wall music. There's a ton of music. And it's funny that you bring up John Carpenter, because I was also thinking when we were watching this, like where we're heading now into this part of the film felt very much like a John Carpenter film in the sense of like maybe Escape from New York or Big Trouble or something like that. Yeah. With like having like so many people now, like they just keep picking up people 
along their journey right. that are like going on this because this is like around the time where they run into remember uh, E.G. Daly or, yep. Liz- or Elizabeth Daly I think she's credited here and she like just joins on and this is like we've got yep. the, the acapella group or you know the soul group or whatever they're there and then we we have Diane Lane and Michael Pere and Rick Moranis and Amy Madigan. Amy Madigan. It's like it just like the crew just keeps growing as they're like maneuvering through the city. And it just at that point, I was kind of thinking this was reminding me a little of John Carpenter. Well, yeah, because they end up in this other sort of club, and that's where they meet the Soul Group, mm-hmm. and they they're doing a song there, and then. They get pulled along because they steal their tour bus to get out of there because they can't take the car anymore Mm -hmm. because they'll be recognized, I guess. I guess. And again, this is another case where it's like, how big is this city? Don't you just have to go back to another neighborhood? Like the city is so big that you've got to ditch the car just in case the bikers see you. Well, and then they get the car back later. Right. Like, yeah, it makes so no sense. That thing with the car was all like confusing yeah. to me too. Because like then at the end, the car is back. Yep. The car that they stole from the first Tufts. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Some trivia I was reading earlier. Um, I guess this was really hard for Elizabeth Daly because she's a singer. She also was in Better Off Dead the same year. That's right. Remember, she's in the, the band at the the school dance. Mm-hmm. And she, she's got a good voice. But I guess it was really hard for her to see Diane Lane lip syncing because she was like, I could be doing this. Yeah. She's not quite right for this role. No, though. I mean, I don't think she could have carried the the whole film. I think she's adorable and she's she's a fine actor and she's got, she's got a good voice. But yeah. yeah, I don't think she could have carried the, the film like Diane Lane did. She's quirky and cute, yeah. but she's not like this like torch song. Torch song leading lady yeah. type thing. Yeah, I know. Too bad E.G. felt that way. I know. But, you know, probably in hindsight, it didn't really matter because didn't. the movie was a failure. <laughs> yeah, she's like, oh, well. Yeah, so then we get the scene that I was talking about in the bus where they've hijacked this poor soul group's bus. One of them is Robert, Robert Townsend. Townsend. Yes. The other guy, I forget his name, but he was in some TV shows okay. in the 80s. Stoney Jackson, I believe is okay. his name. I mean, these guys seem okay with the fact that they're tour bus is getting hijacked and so they do this acapella number for their hijackers as they're driving along and of course like rick moranis being a manager recognizes their talent and he will later take them on as one of his groups so right i guess it all works out for them at the end this scene is really dumb because they end up coming back to the neighborhood and then the cops are there looking out for them or something and they stop them. And so then they try to trick the cops. And of course, the cops are like racists. I think they said spade or something yeah, like that. Yeah, they said that there's a spade group in there. And they were even like, hey, yeah. <laughs> which I'm glad. But yeah, yeah, they were. The cops are kind of dummies, too. Like, I mean, they got stopped by the cops earlier. Uh, at the beginning when they first steal the car and it's just Michael um, Prey and and his sister in the car or whatever and he's just like mouthing off to them and they're like you better slow down and he's like and like squeals off and takes off and stuff so the cops are kind of useless even though the racial slur here was shocking having just recently rewatched 48 hours mm. it was not nearly as shocking as that movie that movie is just full of horrible horrible racial slurs like the whole movie i remember when you watched this and you were horrified yes. yeah and you were like this did not age well and it's played for laughs. It's like Nick Nolte calling Eddie Murphy the N-word uh, constantly and 
stuff or you name it spear chucker he throws oh, like everything geez. at him and it's just rolling off eddie murphy the way it does like but the yeah the whole movie i was just like, like shocked cringe fast clutching my pearls i'm like <laughs> yeah. this is offensive yeah. So we should be thankful. I guess he toned it down a little. But anyway, this all ends up just in a big climactic fight between the gangs. But it's not even much of a fight because Michael Perret convinces Willem Dafoe to take him on one-on-one with sledgehammers. This is like, I'm so glad I couldn't wait when we were watching this. I was like, are they fighting with sledgehammers? It's so bizarre. And it's the most anticlimactic climactic moment of the film because like this is supposed to be like what we're waiting for and they have this sledgehammer fight which Michael Pare is winning and he like then throws his sledgehammer down so then they can just like fight without weapons or whatever yeah and it just ends yeah it's kind of the way 80s movies went you got to the end and it just kind of like, it's like, oh, and then they fight. I guess so. But I think it's probably just because now is so opposite of that, where it's like such where, you know, my famous battle fatigue or whatever. I'm like, I didn't even really get a chance to have battle fatigue here. Yeah. Now everything builds to this big thing. And it goes on and on and, and it on. It goes on and on and on. But this, like, maybe I was expecting it to go on longer or something. I don't know. I just felt like it just kind of just like, it was just such like a like just petered out my disappointment in it is it's not terribly well choreographed choreographed. yeah i like the idea of two dudes fighting with sledgehammers i think that's kind of awesome sure i i'm here for it too but that didn't even last that long it didn't last that long and also the movie's pg and it's like if you're gonna have people fighting with sledgehammers i want some blood and gore (laughs) i want like people's hands getting smashed smashed and faces getting smashed yeah, in the end, Michael Parade just, like you said, disarms Willem Dafoe's sledgehammer, and then they just fight with their fists. Yeah, he just tosses his to the side then, because he's like, it's not a fair fight. Yeah. So then they just fight with their fists. And then he beats Willem Dafoe, and then leaving, like, pulls Willem Dafoe away, and they drive off. That's it. Is that the end? No. We got one more number. Well, before we get there, though, I'm kind of skipping back a few scenes because we should talk about the romance between oh, yes. Michael Pere yeah, and the, the Diane steaming Lane. hot romance. I know it's hard to believe we forgot to talk about it because man, does the screen smolder with those two. Yeah, I mean, I can't even remember exactly how it happens. I feel like she's something like I I don't know, I miss you or I you left me and now you came back. I it's so like non nondescript. I can't even remember how it happens. I just remember they were like then they were like making out and I was like, "Ooh, steamy." And they like have one night together or whatever. Well, hold on. You're you're not doing this justice oh, at all. Oh, yes not. Okay. First of all, the whole thing that convinces Tom to even go after her to begin with is he's been saying no 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 this whole time and then we get this one shot of him just like looking at a old-timey oh, picture God, of her yes it looked like it was again like from the 1800s or right. something it's such a weird like i'm like is that diane lane yeah. <laughs> he's looking at him like it kind of looks like her but it looks like she was in like one of those photo booths that you would like dress up in old clothes and get yeah. your picture taken or something it's weird right and so then he decides well okay i looked at her picture i'll go 
after her, I guess. Yeah. And then, you know, during that whole middle of the movie where they're kind of going into different neighborhoods, at one point they're on this stairwell and Rick Moranis, who's Diane Lane's boyfriend at this point, they get separated because Diane Lane wants to go talk to Tom Cody. And like Rick Moranis is like saying to Amy Madigan, like, what does she still have the hots for him? And blah, 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 blah. It's this really dumb scene. It's why you've forgotten about it. Yeah. But then like, you know, it's just this whole thing where she's like, I still care about you, you know? And he's like, I'm not the kind of guy who sticks around or yeah. whatever. And yeah. like he went off to the army or something. 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 And like she waited two years and she he never even heard he never wrote to her or anything while he was away. And his whole thing with her is was like her career's first or whatever. Right. But I'm like, you're not giving her a whole lot to hold on to, Tom. Yeah. <laughs> So then they come back to the Richmond neighborhood and she's like, you just did it for the money or whatever. And he's like, yeah, that's right. And then I think his sister like gives him a hard time about it and he realizes that he really does love her. So he goes to Rick Moranis's house and Rick Moranis is like, all right, well, here you go. Here's your $10,000 because yeah. he's doing it all yeah, for $10,000 a hotel. Yeah. Uh-huh. And then. Tom's like, no, I'm only picking up McCoy's money. Yeah. He promised McCoy 10%. Yeah, 1000 So he gets $1,000 for her and he like throws the money down on the ground to Rick Moranis, proving that he really does love Diane Lane. And then so she runs out after him into a rainstorm yes. Yes. that happens to be happening outside. And I remember the shot in the videos like where Diane Lane's running out into the rain and he turns around and then of course they start making out. And then they cut to them in bed together yeah. and they're still both soaking wet. wet from the yeah. rain, like drenched. The bed sheets must have been like completely like soggy, <laughs> soggy love making. Yeah. yeah, I completely forgot. I just like was like, yeah, they hooked up again at some point because it's so like trying to be this like romance of all time. Yeah. And it's just not. It's just not. And apparently the producers really noticed that, that they didn't really have great chemistry or anything. And, you know, they apparently blamed diane lane somewhat too they're like yeah she's not really bringing it they weren't thrilled with her in this and and in fairness to her i don't really feel like she's getting a lot to work with so i don't know how she could have done better than she does i mean i find her beguiling i do too i'm like are you kidding me like watch some more of her stuff later she's like smoking what's that one um the one that i really like with richard Gere that she's in where oh god unfaithful unfaithful it's so good (laughs) i think that's um um my favorite um adrian line really unfaithful is your favorite no 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 not my favorite adrian line but i'm saying like adrian line's one of my favorites right like the one day that i realized i liked all of his movies and i was like i guess he's one of my favorite directors yeah no it's not my favorite adrian line it might be foxes i don't know okay i have to think about it but um, no, I'm just saying like, she's like so steamy yeah. with Richard Gere, but no, it, it's not even, I don't even, I'm not even blaming it on her and Michael Pare's chemistry. I just feel like it, it's just not there for the, like the, it, it just, you just don't really care about them getting together. Yeah. You know, they're trying to make that a thing. Yeah. They're really trying to make that a thing, but it's like, it's not even about either of them. It's just the characters. It's just not really there. They're just trying to really make this thing happen. Well, there needed to be some sort of thing that happened between them because she's just like, oh, you went away to the army and you never wrote. And he's like, yeah. 
That's like, what I'm saying. He there's, should be like you were with somebody else or, or something. That's what I'm saying. There's not enough context or drama or whatever you need there to give a shit. Right. That's all I'm saying is they're just like, oh, no, we got to make these two like pine for each other all of a sudden. And now it's like this super hot. There isn't even this much dedicated to this. Like they get together like once or whatever. And then the next thing, if I remember correctly, they're going. I mean, they're seeming like they're lovey and they're kind of back together. And then they're going to the rumble and they're on, on the subway. And this is when he punches her in the face. That's right. <laughs> and I was like, I turned to you. I was like, did he just knock her out? Yes, but he does that for her own good. Yeah, it's for her own good. Because she's going to go to the rumble and he doesn't want her to go. No. So he knocks, knocks her out. Knocks her out. And then she even like makes a joke about it later. Like she says something about being knocked out later. And it's like a ha ha ha. Like a laugh at, like, at the end. After the rumble and everything. And after the like, you know, they're going to go their separate ways or whatever. And he's like, you know you should stay with fish or whatever. I mean, they, they have like a nice kind of party, but she says she makes some sort of like remark about like, or, you know, or knock me out or something like that. I mean, it's, it's, it's addressed. Not too uh, progressively <laughs> minded, let's say. It totally took me by surprise. I, I like literally had to turn to you and say, did he just hit her in the face? Cause it's so like comes out of nowhere. It's just, he psh- knocks her out. Yeah. Like, then you see her, like, slumping yes. into, like, Amy Madigan's yes. arms or something, and he's like, get rid of her or whatever. Yeah, uh, a romance for, for the ages. Well, as it turns out, things don't really work out for them because we end at another concert at the Wiltern, and the first song we see the um, soul group, the acapella group, sing, I Can Dream About Can You. Dream About You. And while they're on stage, Tom and uh, Ellen are backstage and he's saying that he's going to leave and that, you know, her career is what she should be concentrating on. And And then he has like a nice moment with Rick Moranis, too. Yeah. where He's like, you're, you know, you're basically better for her. Right. He knows that a guy like him is no good for her career. So he's going to take himself out of the picture for the betterment of her and her career. And then we get my favorite song, Tonight is What It Means to Be Young. Ellen performs that as Tom is working his way through the crowd, and he looks back at her while she's singing, and yeah, that's the end of the movie. Yeah, no, he hangs out, like, in the door and, like, stays for the rest of her performance before, you know, before he takes off in the stolen car, which, well, actually, it's Amy Madigan that's driving the stolen car, and then, like, he says, you know, something like, can I get a ride or I don't know. She says something. They, they're going to go off and have adventures together because yes. again, remember Walter Hill wanted this to be like the trilogy or something, right? Yep. So they were going to head off into the sunset to go get into some more trouble. Yeah. And we get a fixed song in the credits, which yeah. is pretty cool. So good. So yeah, that's streets of fire. As I said, it cost about 14.5 million and made a paltry 8 million in the States. So uh, why do you think it failed? Oh, gee, I don't know. (laughs) Who the hell was this movie for? Like, I I don't remember how it was marketed at all. I have no idea. I cannot. I mean, I remember seeing stuff, the videos on MTV. Well, that's how it was marketed. Right. But I mean, like, yes, there was that. But I mean, I don't remember seeing trailers for it or whatever before other movies or going to the movies and seeing posters or cutouts or whatever of it i do remember the mtv stuff because i was watching mtv a lot yeah I, I don't know i don't know who i would recommend this to i know who i'd recommend this to some boomers 
No, I mean, yeah, boomers might like it, but I also think that people who like tough guy 80s action movies will find things to enjoy here. I mean, he's a tough guy and it's a action movie and Yeah, but then you also have a lot of performances too. Are people that are there for the tough guy action movie going to be okay with the performances because it is like you said it's kind of almost a musical i think people who have 80s nostalgia will find things to enjoy here when it shows up on netflix which it often does sure i mean i guess it's 80s nostalgia but with like this 50-ish type yeah but you gotta remember 50s nostalgia was heavy through the 70s and the 80s 50s nostalgia was around that whole time yeah it's it's kind of baked into the 70s and the 80s in a weird way but i don't personally feel that way about the 50s so i don't get a lot of seeing like hot rods and stuff you know I'm not an American graffiti fan. No. I wasn't that into Happy Days. No. I just am not into the 50s as a general rule. No, that's not my thing either. I'm not a rockabilly guy. I don't put pomade in my hair. I like some rockabilly, but the rest of it, I mean, I'm not into the whole culture of it, though. So, yeah, I mean, I think there are people who like that kind of thing. I think people who are into 50s culture could find stuff here to enjoy. I think if I would like if somebody was a, like a super fan of Willem Dafoe, I would say check this out yeah. because it's like it's fun to see him so young. And he's just I mean, I'll watch him in anything. Fans of Walter Hill. Yeah. I mean, if you like the Warriors, if you just feel like you need more of that vibe, you almost get it you here. You almost get it. It's like it's not going to be as as good as the warriors but you kind of get to have that you know experience. what it's kind of like is do you remember when after fast times that movie the wildlife came out mm-hmm. i think amy heckerling might have even directed it or Maybe. something it was supposed to kind of be a sequel to fast times even though it wasn't really it feels like that sort of thing with the warriors where it's like if you really like the Warriors and you like this director, you should watch this. This movie also I kept thinking of the movie The Wanderers. Right. Is what I kept thinking of while I was watching this. The Wanderers is more serious. It is more serious, but it is kind of, I mean, it's that 50s type thing. So apparently Willem Dafoe had been cast because he had been in Catherine Bigelow's film The Loveless, which is also about greasers. And that was like in 1981. So that's how we got Willem Dafoe in this movie. It's thanks to Catherine Bigelow. Lots of thanks to Catherine Bigelow. Now, my take on why did this fail? Um, I don't think it was the marketing because I think they kind of marketed the hell out of it. They tried to sell it to the MTV generation and I guess they weren't really interested in it beyond the videos (laughs) that were on heavy rotation. I just think it's just kind of a clunky movie that doesn't really fully work. And you've got, unfortunately, a leading man who isn't quite up to snuff and it's got a weird concept that not everybody's going to be on board with and the central romance as you pointed out is a dud because either the actors didn't have on-screen chemistry and they cut it out of the movie or it just was never really in the movie to begin with i think if it had a really strong romantic element to it it probably could have done better if it had a strong romantic element to it so much more would have been forgiven. That would have worked if there would have been more of a story there. And again, I'm not even saying that it's their chemistry. I think it's just there's not enough motivation there. The stakes aren't high enough or something. I don't know. It just doesn't, 
it's like presenting itself like we're all of a sudden supposed to be like oh this is like thank god they are back together you know and and i just wasn't wasn't there they didn't put what they needed to put into it yeah and that's why i think ultimately people didn't really like the movie i think if people had liked the movie then it would have done fine but i think it just wasn't very good and i think that's the reason and i also think that it was just kind of a weird concept that people aren't going to necessarily just jump on no how would you i mean you're like it's a there's a singer she gets stolen off stage just because she's hot and like she's stolen by this creepy biker who's like i'm gonna spend time with you for a couple of weeks you better be nice and then i'll let you go like (laughs) it's just like okay and then like this like rando boyfriend is like kind of on board to help her come back and they like this ragtag group of people go on this like quest to like do what? I don't know. It's well, like... gosh, when you put it that way, that makes it sound like this isn't a very good movie. <laughs> I'm just saying, like, that's where I'm like, how would I sell this to someone? Like, thank God MTV was a thing back then. And like, you know, we were like super into music videos and like that gave it like half a chance. But like MTV's not even happening now. Well, I think now you just sell it to people. And when we say sell it to people, all you're saying is recommending it yes. to watch on Netflix. Yes. You yes. just say, hey, you like 80s movies that are weird? This is one. It's yeah. pretty weird. Yeah. It's got some stuff in it. Do you like The Warriors? It's kind of like that. It's not as good. But, you know, do you like Diane Lane? How'd you like to see Willem Dafoe in a pair of like vinyl overalls wielding a sledgehammer <laughs> in a street fight? And that's it. Nothing. No shirt underneath, too. Like it's yeah, just yeah. pasty, pasty Willem Dafoe. And like his hair is so great too. It's like like a he's got duck really hair. But it's really good. Yeah. Like yeah, it just it works. Like and that's what I'm saying. Like he like ha- there's certain like kind of and, and I know you're very protective of Mad Max, but there's some Mad Max ish sure, type yeah, stuff definitely. going on here. Definitely. And I'm here for it. All right. Well, I'm going to go strap on my vinyl overalls, grab my sledgehammer and go duke it out with one of your ex-boyfriends in the middle of the street. And I can dream about you.
about does it today for tentpole trauma. If you like what you heard, check out our social media presence on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Just look for tentpole trauma. That was easy, wasn't it? If you like us, hit subscribe and leave us a sterling review on iTunes, if you dare. If you really like us, head over to patreon.com and get involved in one of our fabulous tiers. You'll be glad you did. Want to communicate with Tentpole Trauma? Send an email to tentpoletrauma at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. And who knows, one day you may even get your email read on one of our shows. Well, thanks for listening, and we'll see you real soon. Thank you.